You're listening to The Legal Eagle on WNHHLP 103.5 FM. Welcome to The Legal Eagle Radio Show, where we explore the legal issues of the day, especially in Connecticut, where we originate. We look at the criminal and civil justice system, both at the state and federal level, and we talk to lawyers, judges, and folks connected to the law in various ways. Today, we are delighted to welcome Eric Higgins and Lenny Brahman. Uh, tell us the formal name of your law firm and where you are located. Good morning, Marcia. Uh, the name of our firm is Wasi, Rosen, Kweskin, and Kuriansky. Um, I want to add we celebrated our 100th anniversary last year, which we're very Fabulous. proud of. Fabulous. Yeah, thank you. And we're located in downtown Stanford. That's wonderful. Okay, so... You guys are just off a win before the Connecticut State Supreme Court right. that will have dramatic impact on divorce judgments in this state. So thank you for joining us in the, our New Haven uh, studio today. Um, and I'd like you to sort of begin talking about this lawsuit, how it originated, what started it. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, and that's right. Before we get to the Supreme Court case, it's important to understand what brought us there? And it's quite an interesting tale, actually. Yes. Tell us the tale. Well, it begins uh, in some ways on October 2nd, 2007, when uh, Gail Renke and Walter Singh were divorced after 18 years of marriage. Hmm. They had two children, mm-hmm. uh, teenagers, 17 and 14 years old. Walter um, was a self-employed IT consultant, mm-hmm. uh, and Gail was, had been a stay-at-home mother mm-hmm. for uh, many years at that time. And as most cases do, as 90% of the cases do in Connecticut, um, more than that, uh, this case was resolved not with a trial, but with an agreement, uh, a separation agreement, which the judge then approved, and that became their divorce decree. Did they go to lawyers before that? Or? Yes, they had been represented by counsel throughout the process. Uh-huh. Um, and separation agreement was very detailed and covered all aspects of their divorce, including things like um, the division of their property. Mm-hmm. which they agreed was to be split 50-50, mm-hmm. their bank accounts, their um, retirement accounts, and so forth. Uh, and also uh, the alimony and child support that was going to be paid. And mm-hmm. that was based on 40% of Walter's stated income, which he represented to be $100,000 a year at that time. Uh-huh. So in other words, $40,000 per year in alimony and child support. And all of this was based on, um, uh, as it is in every case, um, financial affidavits that the parties had filed at the time of the divorce. Hmm. In Connecticut, parties, when they get divorced, are required to file financial affidavits. And these, um, these are legal documents? These are legal documents. Mm-hmm. They're foundational documents in, in the divorce cases. Mm-hmm. And they're an uh, inventory of the party's income, their expenses, mm-hmm. their assets, and their liabilities or their debts. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about financial affidavits later and the development of the laws that relates to them. But mm-hmm. uh, for present purposes, let's just say these are uh, documents that the parties are supposed to be able to take to the bank. All right. They're mm-hmm. sworn under oath. Um, who, who under which oath? I mean, who's uh, before a judge? No, before a notary public. Ah. It, it, and, but they are uh, sworn under penalty of perjury. You actually can be, okay. uh, can be prosecuted for perjury if mm-hmm. you falsify. Mm-hmm. knowingly falsified that, that's rare it is rare right but but the point is they um are the equivalent of sworn testimony these affidavits mm-hmm. so walter and gail are divorced uh october 2nd 2007 
and they go on their way. Mm-hmm. In 2010, mm-hmm. out of the blue, Gail receives a notice from the IRS. Mm-hmm. And the notice refers to a tax refund in the neighborhood of $100,000 that was for um, uh, tax years during the period of the marriage. Huh. First, she'd ever heard about this. And is, it, uh, is this is addressed to her? It was, I, I believe it was addressed to her. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, may, it may have been addressed to them both, but mm-hmm. she somehow received this. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so she concluded that uh, he was, that he stood to receive this large tax refund, about $100,000, which That's really should have, should have been divided at the time of the divorce. So right. she got back in touch with her lawyer. We were not representing her in the divorce or at that time. And her lawyer um, moves to open the judgment. In mm-hmm. other words, to open the divorce judgment to investigate this mm-hmm. and see whether maybe this is something that she has a right to share in. Mm-hmm. In connection with that, he issues some subpoenas. Um, her lawyer. Her lawyer. Mm-hmm. He issues some subpoenas to banks and he issues a subpoena to uh, Ameritrade, where, where they had had some accounts during the marriage. And the documents come into his office from Ameritrade. And Walter's lawyer files a motion for a protective order saying, look, the judgment has not been opened yet. There's nothing pending before the court. You don't have the right to run around issuing subpoenas when there's no pending case. Mm -hmm. And so the lawyers agree that these documents will be held in a sealed envelope until the judge has a chance to make a ruling on it. Very dramatic. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they mm-hmm. go to court. Hmm. And Walter's lawyer objects to Gail's lawyer having um, uh, access to these TD Ameritrade accounts. Why? He says, well, I've already given her everything. There's nothing there. It's, <clears throat> a, it's a fishing expedition. The lawyer says. Yes. Uh, it's a waste of time and, it's, uh, and so on and so forth. Well, ultimately, uh, he loses... And the judge um, authorizes the unsealing of these documents. And lo and behold, there's another Ameritrade account with about $90,000 in it Mm. that he opened about a month before the divorce. Mm -hmm. All right. So we're up to 190. Now we're up to 190 and we're up to two different kinds of assets. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so then they they go to court uh, on the motion to open the judgment. Mm -hmm. All right. And uh, the purpose being to open up the judgment, to do more discovery, to find out, is there anything else there? And, and, and uh, if so, what do we do with it? If not, what do we do with the things we've already found? Correct. All right. And they get to court, and this is um, critical to what ultimately landed us in the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. They don't have a hearing uh, hmm. on the issue of fraud, which was the basis of her moving to open the judgment in the first place. Instead, mm-hmm. they just agree. They stipulate and they agree that the judgment can be opened mm-hmm. for this purpose so that um, Gail can go, go off, do her discovery, do her investigation, and then the judge can decide what to do. And that's what happens. The trial judge in Stanford um, accepts that agreement. He opens the judgment just based on their agreement. and As, off- a, as opposed to, just for our listeners, as opposed to looking at it through a f- by fraud. As opposed, right, as opposed, the alternative would have been to have a full hearing, okay, like a trial, mm-hmm. essentially, mm-hmm. like a miniature trial mm-hmm. on the issue of fraud, where you're calling witnesses, mm-hmm. where Walter's testifying mm-hmm. under oath, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. Right. 
Um, and the point of that trial, that mini trial, would be to determine whether the judgment is even going to be opened or not. Right. Not even how the assets should be divided if the judgment is open. So he agrees to open. He agrees to open up the documents, correct? Yes. Why? I, we don't know that, but but there are good reasons to do that, let's just say in general. Okay. okay. And, and, and among the good reasons to do that um, <clears throat> often are it's expensive to put on this hearing. Yes. Um, yes. We all know legal proceedings uh, it can be very, very expensive. Right. That's one. So he avoided, and they both avoided, the legal right. expense. Okay. Uh, another thing um, people avoid by doing that is the emotional toll of contested court hearings. Now, for some people, it doesn't bother them. For some people, it really bothers them. It's very hard on people mm-hmm. emotionally to go through <clears> that, <throat> particularly <throat> with a spouse or a former <clears throat> spouse. It's loaded right. emotionally. Right. And it's stressful for a lot of people. It's loaded. It's loaded. And uh, so that was avoided. Another good reason to avoid that, uh, if you're in his position, um, or or actually in in either one of their positions, Mm -hmm. is um, if you have a hearing on the issue of fraud and and the judge finds that you committed fraud, there are other consequences, some nasty ones that can flow from that. Um, In his case, he was a self-employed IT consultant. Uh, among his clients was a prominent law firm. Mm. Well, so, you know, uh, who knows whether if this had come out, the law firm would have continued or his other clients would have continued to use him. Or if mm-hmm. he had just been an, a regular mm-hmm. uh, W-2 employee, whether that perhaps could have had adverse employment consequences for him. And so the risk that a judge makes a public finding based on the mm-hmm. evidence that mm-hmm. you have committed fraud is a risk that Oftentimes, people are wise to avoid. I see. Okay. <clears throat> so off they go. Mm-hmm. We were hired um, a couple of months after that, and we did a lot of discovery, uh, an investigation, and uh, among them, um, uh, all of this had to do with income. He had represented. Now, remember, he had represented on his financial affidavit when they were divorced that his income was a hundred thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, we asked him. Well, produce. Uh, whatever proof you have of that W2s, mm-hmm. 1099s, tax mm-hmm. documents. Mm-hmm. I don't have any. I don't have any. All right. That's that was the response. I didn't receive any. <coughs> uh, the, we, we said, well, you work for a law firm. I, we, I would have thought that you would have received documents like this. Well, I didn't. All right. Well, so then we moved the law firms in New York that he was working for. And, uh, so we had to move for court permission to issue a subpoena in New York to get these documents. To, right to show how much they yeah. were paying him in, in, in 2007. Right. Uh, and again, it's a motion for protective order. It's a fishing expedition. There's nothing there. I've already told her how much I, I was earning. By the way, when your opposing counsel tells you you're on a fishing expedition, keep fishing. <laughs> <laughs> That's good advice. That's yeah. a good headline. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, so uh, the judge ultimately denies that. She gives us permission to go to New York to have the subpoena issued to the law firm to get their documents sort of from the horse's mouth, right? Right, right, what right. He's right, being paid. Well, right. it turns out um, his total income, in, in round numbers, um, they were paying him like, 150, not 100, and plus he already acknowledged making like another 30 from other sources. So the point is, now we had evidence that his income was about 180 mm-hmm. at the time of the divorce when he mm-hmm. said it was 100. In addition to these other assets, mm-hmm. and the discovery mm-hmm. also revealed 
another three or four assets that he hadn't disclosed worth well into the six figures. Hmm. Okay, so we, we had quite a bit here, mm-hmm. we thought. And, uh, and also, um, uh, you know, we felt that uh, it wasn't just one thing, right? Anybody could forget an account. Right. But this seemed to be a pattern to us. Right, right. And um, so we go back to uh, the trial court eventually. And in 2013, we have our trial. Uh, it took place over six days. Hmm. And in August of 2013, the trial judge issued a written decision. And um, he found that we had proven all these things that I just described, the, mm-hmm. the income that hadn't been disclosed, the assets that hadn't been disclosed. And um, essentially what he did is he divided the new, I'll call them the new assets, 50-50 in her favor. Mm-hmm. The same split you may remember is. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they agreed upon for the assets at the time of the divorce. And with respect to the income, uh, he increased it by like 10%. All right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and actually, uh, shortened the alimony period, which mm-hmm. didn't explain why, but he actually shortened the alimony period. Um, so in some sense it was a win. Mm-hmm. But we were dissatisfied with it. And the Mm. reasons we were dissatisfied with it is, number one, we felt that to divide assets that had been concealed, Mm -hmm. right? Right. The same way they were divided if they were not concealed Mm -hmm. actually puts the incentives all in the wrong place, Mm -hmm. we argued. In Mm -hmm. other words, you know, Mm -hmm. a rational person, uh, an amoral rational person would decide, well, I'm better off not concealing some things. Mm -hmm. Worst thing that happens they get divided the same way they would have been divided had I disclosed them, and hey, maybe I get away with it. <clears throat> right. So we thought that was <clears throat> unfair. Um, she got a small fraction of her legal fees, which we felt was unfair after we had proven all, all mm-hmm. these things. And we felt that the alimony uh, increase was not high enough, mm-hmm. uh, an extra approximately 10% when his income was about 80% higher than he had disclosed. And we argued that it was unfair mm-hmm. for him to shorten the alimony period. Mm-hmm. Um, there right. was no uh, allegation that she had done anything wrong and so she appealed yeah, and she appealed to the Connecticut Appellate Court mm-hmm. in Hartford and do you want to talk Lenny about what happened there absolutely. okay Lenny you're on absolutely so um, we were the appellant mm-hmm. on the appellate court and the issues were you know, whether the trial court um, the trial judge in uh, making his decision on how the assets and uh, the alimony should be uh, reallocated mm-hmm. after the judgment was open, made the correct decision, or whether um, he uh, awarded too little in various categories. Right. The appellate court um, had just decided, uh, while our case was pending in the trial court, a couple of, of decisions mm-hmm. uh, that had address the question of a trial court's quote-unquote subject matter jurisdiction mm-hmm. to uh, reallocate assets and income uh, from a divorce after the divorce was final and had determined in uh, a number of those cases that the trial court did not have subject matter jurisdiction. Could you explain that to our listeners? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So... Subject matter jurisdiction mm-hmm. is, in very brief terms, 
the power of of a court to hear a particular type of case. Oh, okay, right. Mm -hmm. And that's very different from whether the court uh, is deciding the case rightly or wrongly, Mm -hmm. or uh, whether the court has um, the appropriate has made the appropriate decision under statute. That's a question of the court's authority under the statute or mm-hmm. under the common law. <clears throat> Subject matter jurisdiction, mm-hmm. my law professor in, in uh, law school to- told us that it's, it's really whether the, uh, the court has, um, it's like the electricity in the house. If the, light, <laughs> if the electricity isn't on, you can't even turn the lights on. Right, right. right. So um, subject matter jurisdiction also uh, is uh, a, a, a question that even if the parties agree right. that there is subject matter jurisdiction, that the court has the authority to hear the case, mm-hmm. the court has to decide on its own right. whether or not it does. Right. And uh, that's so the, the court actually has an obligation mm-hmm. to determine whether it has the power to hear the case or not. Now, in general, trial courts um, have subject matter jurisdiction to hear um divorce cases mm-hmm. and family cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there was some law mm-hmm. that suggested that, and p- particularly there was the use of the word jurisdiction in the statute that allowed for opening of judgment, not only in family cases, but in all cases, foreclosure mm-hmm. cases, mm-hmm. civil cases generally. The, the legislature had used the word jurisdiction in that statute. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> some years ago there was... Um, a Supreme Court case that said, well, when the legislature said jurisdiction, they didn't necessarily mean subject matter, subject matter <laughs> jurisdiction. They didn't, they weren't talking about the power of the court to hear the case at all. Right. They weren't talking about whether the court had to determine on its own uh, whether or not it had the power to hear the case. They were talking about something uh, called personal jurisdiction, mm-hmm. which is <clears throat> or whether the court has power over individual people. And then couple of years, you know, some years later, they said, well, actually, that statute doesn't really mean personal jurisdiction either. It's got to mean statutory authority. What was the end result? The end result is that in uh, a case called um, uh, Baby Girl B, the court decided that the mo- the statute about opening a judgment mm-hmm. deals with the court's statutory authority, What whether the court uh, is going to decide one way or the other whether to open the judgment or not. Not whether the court has the power to hear the to hear the issue, okay. Right, right. So the but the appellate court had had some decisions that said in family cases, mm-hmm. the trial court doesn't have subject matter jurisdiction just based on the parties agreeing to open the judgment. So in other words, this case sort of walked into a a, a real difficult kind of procedural uh, reality. It, that that you know, uh, in other words, because I'm sitting here and I'm wondering, you know. How, this issue must have come up before your case. I mean, a zillion times, and yet nothing happened all these years. It, it had come up before, and, okay. and there were some conflicting decisions, and mm-hmm. that, that was part of the problem. The root problem was that the statute that governs the opening of judgments mm-hmm. provides that, it, generally speaking, it has to be done within four months of the judgment. Now, I see. There was a time limit. Okay. Exactly. Back at the beginning of the show, uh, if anybody remembers, this was three years after the judgment. So they were right. way outside oh. the four-month period. Mm-hmm. But the statute also <clears throat> says that that four-month period can mm-hmm. be waived. Mm-hmm. So. That was an issue in our case, and, and mm-hmm. uh, so we had taken the position that, of course, it was waived. They agreed that the judgment mm-hmm. could be opened. Mm-hmm. 
what ended up happening in the appellate court was, uh, was we went up, uh, we filed a legal briefs, we, um, and we went up for oral argument, presented mm-hmm. the case. This mm-hmm. whole process took about a year and a half. Wow. And we're waiting for a decision. Every day the mailman would come, we'd ask the mailman, do you have anything for us from the appellate court? And he'd say no. And one day the mailman did have something for us for, uh, for the appellate court. And what they did is they did something very unusual. And they issued us what's called the sua sponte order, meaning mm-hmm. uh, an order on their own initiative. No one asked mm-hmm. them to do it. They just did it on their own mm-hmm. to the trial judge and said, we order you to state specifically whether you're finding that um, fraud was committed because the trial judge never said one way or the other whether this was fraud. He just said there were assets that were not disclosed. There, were, there was income that was not disclosed. Now, that may sound like fraud, and it's, it is similar to fraud. But, you know, from a technical legal standpoint, fraud requires a couple more things. It requires proof of intent mm-hmm. to deceive. Mm-hmm. It, and it, there's a higher burden of proof. It's mm-hmm. a clear and convincing standard of evidence. So mm-hmm. the appellate court to us out of the blue says to the trial judge, tell us whether or not you're making a finding of fraud. And we wait and we wait and we wait. And then trial court issues a written decision, uh, bottom line of which is no, I'm not finding fraud. So then the appellate court issues another, a second sua sponte order. As I said, one is unusual. Now we have two in this case. And the second one says, we want the parties to file additional legal briefs on the issue of whether, and getting back to what Lenny was Mm. explaining about subject matter jurisdiction, the absence of a finding of fraud deprived the court of subject matter jurisdiction. Mm Mm-hmm. And so they put this issue on the table and, right. and, and we file additional briefs. Uh, yeah. And, and here's the interesting thing. So we filed a brief that said, we think the trial court had subject matter jurisdiction. We mm. think it had the authority to decide um, th- these issues. And the, the husband's attorney, our, our uh, opponent, also filed a brief that said, uh, we think there was subject matter jurisdiction huh. too. Oh, that's interesting. But remember, the court, the appellate court, has to determine independently whether the court thinks there was subject matter jurisdiction. Right, right. Right, and it's not enough that the parties agree. Right, it's not enough. And uh, so uh, it's all finally teed up, and and, uh, eventually the appellate court issues its decision, and it dismisses the whole appeal and dismisses everything that happened below, saying that there was no subject matter jurisdiction as a result of the Mm -hmm. failure to find fraud, uh, or the, uh, the absence of a finding of fraud, Everything's dismissed. It's a catastrophe for us. It's a catastrophe for our client because remember she appealed and now she's not only lost the appeal, but lost all of the benefits that she had won after years of litigation. Right, right. right. No, it's all gone. And uh, the implication of that was that this guy got to keep all the things that the trial judge found that he had, had not disclosed. It was perverse. Nevertheless, yeah. that was the decision. Okay. The result was perverse. I'm not saying that the yeah, legal yeah, no, reasoning no, no, was, but the result was right, right. Hard, to, hard, to, hard to reconcile. Hard to reconcile. Yeah. Which appellate court was this? The Connecticut Appellate Court. No, I know, but which district? Oh, I, there's, there's one. It's a, one, one appellate court sits in Hartford for the entire in the state. In Hartford for the whole thing. Oh, for yeah. this, for this particular. Okay. Yeah. Um, to our listeners, you are listening to WNHLP 103.5 FM. We are broadcasting live from downtown New Haven. We are streaming live on TuneIn Radio and NewHavenIndependent.org. And we are also streaming live video on Facebook Live. So go to Facebook Live or wherever you'd like and join us. Um, okay, so this is crazy. Yeah, so here where, we where, are. Where you're at right now. Right. right. We're, we're back to square one, basically. You're basically back to square one. And 
and nothing and and really neither side is well certainly your client is not helped at all um it's crazy because she loses everything um so then what happens well uh let turn it over to Lenny again. But the next thing is our only option left is to ask the Supreme Court to take our case. To that's take the a, next, to take a look. Right. That's the next right. court up. And uh, of course it's the highest court in the state of Connecticut. So this is, um, so, but meanwhile, just at this point, just from not a legal point of view, but just life, a life point of view, what we have here as you lose this, as, as, as the appellate court rules is a person involved in a divorce for want of a better word, can commit fraud, cannot reveal or disclose to his or her partner the, the actual assets and financial dealings of his life, has kept that concealed, which frankly might be a crime, but who knows, uh, and that that's okay. That's okay? I mean, how did we get to the point where there are lawyers involved and there is deceptive filings and you get away with that well it was it was awfully frustrating to us and um and uh, i suppose that um the way i would say it is not that it's okay but that there are some wrongs in life and 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 grievances in life for which the courts simply don't provide a remedy ah okay i give you another uh, an example um you know uh, there there are many um torts right mm-hmm. um, um uh, situations where someone causes another one to an, uh, an injury. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not okay. But at the same time, uh, there's no remedy for that unless you bring it within the statute of limitations. But in this case, it was uh, only four months, right? Or three months. It was four months. Four months. Yes. Right. Very short. And so he, I think that's, uh, uh, to be fair to the court, mm-hmm. I think that would have been the, the court's response to that question. Not, not that it's okay, but that there's not a remedy for every wrong in life right. through the courts. Right. Okay. Right. Um, and so anyway, here we are. And in our last chance, we got one shot left. We have one <laughs> shot left, the Supreme Court. And right. the su- Supreme Court, which does not have to hear our case. In fact, the Supreme Court declines to hear most of the cases That's it's right. asked to hear. That's right. Um, so again, Lenny was, was um, very much involved in that process. And so we set about to convince the Supreme Court that our case is worthy <laughs> of their time. Uh, so... So uh, this was actually shortly uh, after I had started at uh, Officer Rosen. Eric came into my office and he said, uh, I need you to help me with a petition for certification <laughs> to the Supreme Court. And I said, oh, boy. I think um, I was breathing heavily. And, uh, <laughs> Agitated. You know, That's not easy. Yeah. I, I, knew, I knew how rarely those are granted. Um, right. And you have to convince the court to exercise its discretion to even hear your case in the first place. Mm-hmm. And there's criteria uh, that you can try to fall within. For instance, if there's um, some confusion in the law and, uh, among different decisions of the appellate court, which there, there had been here, if there's decisions of the Supreme Court that mm-hmm. you think um, are contrary to what the appellate court did, if it's an issue that's important that the court um, really should take a look at that's going to affect a lot of people. But even if you can show one or more of those, you're not guaranteed to have the court hear the case because the court... Um, has such a big docket. They they only focus on uh, cases that are of uh, the most importance, where there's really um, a wrong committed that they have to ch- to ch- ch- change the law with. Now, so we submitted a petition for certification, and the court, uh, uh, fortunately for us, granted that petition for certification, and 
they limited the certification to a, a single legal issue, which is, which is common. Mm-hmm. And the legal issue was, did the appellate court have subject matter jurisdiction? Did it have the power to hear the case? Mm-hmm. Even though the trial court found that, uh, there was, that fraud wasn't proven here. Mm-hmm. And, and what it comes down to is, mm-hmm. do you need to show fraud? Mm-hmm. in order to have a do-over, in order to reallocate right, the assets. Right, right, right. That, that's a high, yes, okay. Yeah. Uh, or can parties, as they did here, agree that we're, gonna, we're not going to try to have a trial on fraud. We're not going to go through this a whole long, drawn-out, expensive process of proving whether fraud was committed. We're just going to try to redivide the assets uh, and let the court decide what's equitable, what's fair in terms of uh, the division. And that was the decision of the Supreme Court. Yeah, but w- one of the um, other, another unusual and I, and I think uh, somewhat interesting um, aspect of all of this is that we were um, there were two amicus briefs filed, yes. uh, and it's unusual, certainly in family cases, mm-hmm. um, and I, but I think unusual generally for amicus briefs to be filed at all. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. Um, uh, s- some of your listeners, I'm sure, know an amicus brief is simply uh, a legal brief a, a written legal argument that's mm-hmm. submitted to the court by usually it's an organization mm-hmm. that's not a party to the case but mm-hmm. but their organizational mission relates somehow to the issue that's before the court mm-hmm. uh so here we had not one of those but two of those and i don't mm-hmm. ever remember uh, a family case that had two this mm-hmm. is the connecticut bar association and um, the american academy of matrimonial lawyers mm-hmm. a- and you know the reason that they submitted amicus briefs uh, that they stated in their briefs was that they thought there was a policy issue here, an important public policy issue. Mm-hmm. And that issue is whether um, the, the courts are going to, in a sense, uh, force uh, parties who have been divorced to go through a trial on the issue of fraud in order to reallocate um, the the assets. their assets right. or whether they can agree to do it. And there is already a strong policy in state law that you you have married uh, couples whose assets should be divided between them and, and their children and used for the family. Mm-hmm. You, you don't want to unnecessarily make them spend money on legal fees. Um, and so the, the strong policy is to encourage settlement and agreement wherever possible. And that's expressed in cases. And the amicus briefs that were submitted to the Supreme Court in our case said, if you make uh, parties try the issue of fraud, if you make them prove fraud in order to reallocate, you're contravening that policy. Hmm. You're, you're, you're telling people that you can't settle. You have to try. You have to try the case. If, uh, if you want the right to wrong, it, so to that's speak. That's right. Even if you would rather settle and have, even if you would rather settle and have the, the court redivide the assets. During the course of your um, investigation and uh, reading, uh, what did you find out about other states? Well, uh, this is an issue, obviously, that's got, come up in, in other states as well. And there's one California uh, case that's become something of a legend that I just came across recently. Um, in that case, it was pretty dramatic. A, 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 a wife who was married at the time um, won the lottery. Uh, she won the lottery. She won the lottery. Oh, she, that's a good one. She, yeah. was, <laughs> she was already thinking about divorcing her husband. When, when she won the lottery. Correct. And, and he said, I want half. <laughs> <laughs> and so she um, actually filed for divorce uh-huh. before she got the, the, 
payout, the first payout. Before, okay. And the divorce was finalized, and they had a separation agreement, which perhaps the, the, the wife hadn't read. It said that if there's assets that are concealed, the one who um, didn't, the, 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 the one who concealed them loses 100% of that asset that they've concealed, okay? Now, the wife didn't tell the husband in her financial affidavit, or the, the equivalent in California, that she had won the lottery and that she was expect, <laughs> expecting a million-dollar payout. Um, some years later, uh, after the divorce was finalized, um, the husband got something in the mail from the Lottery Commission in California <laughs> saying... He went, years without, he went years without knowing that his wife had won the lottery how while do you they not, were married. How do you not know your wife won the lottery? It's in the newspaper. That's, that's right. So, so uh, he, um, after he, his job uh, picked up from the floor, um, <laughs> he, he got a lawyer... Um, and they, uh, moved to open the judgment, the same as in our case. And the judge said, you concealed the lottery winnings from your husband intentionally under the separation agreement. He's entitled to a hundred percent of that lottery winning. Right. So this is something that and she, and she gave it to him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, then she appealed to the highest court in California mm-hmm. with you know, a couple, she had a couple of arguments of why she thought she, she was entitled to keep the winning. She said, it was a gift and so forth, and the court rejected that. But the 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 upshot is, you know, this is a, a dramatic example of it, but it's the kind of thing that can happen. And one of the ways, and Eric can speak to this, is uh, one of the ways you can try to protect against this risk. Mm-hmm. If, if, if parties have a separation agreement when they're divorced, you can put in a clause that says, you know, if you, if you conceal something, um, the other spouse is going to get 100%. If it's right. determined. So, right. And that would make sense because there's a penalty in effect if you conceal. Right. Okay. <clears throat> right. Right. But the uh, it, going back to the beginning here, I mean, it seems that initially you could conceal, for want of a better word, but you could conceal uh, when you signed the papers because the notary stamped it and nobody was really looking at it. I mean, is there an obligation for the lawyer for this husband? Um, what's his um, Mr. Singh. Mr. Singh. Yeah. Was there an, uh, um, uh, an obligation on the part of his lawyer to make sure that these documents were accurate? I mean, under the ethics rulings and so forth regarding lawyers? Right. That, or am I I'm in a new place here? No, I, that's an excellent question. Uh, and uh, it's a tricky one. Uh, and it's a tricky one for lawyers. But, but here is what I believe the answer to be. <clears throat> Certainly a, a lawyer is prohibited from submitting any document and certainly including a financial affidavit to the court that that lawyer knows is false. Correct. No question about that. That's Mm -hmm. an easy, that's Mm -hmm. an easy one. Mm -hmm. The harder one is whether the lawyer has any obligation of independent investigation. Right. To determine whether that's true or not. That's right. And uh, I believe in general, the answer to that is no. Mm-hmm. However, uh, at the same time, mm-hmm. um, at a minimum, I, I think that responsible and ethical lawyering requires some um, reasonable um, effort on the part of the lawyer to satisfy himself or, her, or herself that the client is being candid, all right, uh, mm-hmm. on the affidavit. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so at the same time, you know, uh, lawyers really in general, don't have the ability to go behind the information that the clients are giving them. Now, for example, we don't have the ability to call up Ameritrade and say, uh, hi, I represent Mr. So-and-so. 
uh, he's disclosed three Ameritrade accounts. Are there any more? We just don't have the right to do that. And, mm-hmm. and or, um, mm-hmm. you know, do we have the right to find out what mm-hmm. their bank accounts are or to um, contact their employer and to say, I just want to make sure that my, you know, Mr. Smith, my client is, is um, right. telling me the truth about how much he's being paid. We don't have the right to do that. And in fact, if we, if we do do that against our client's instructions, that's probably uh, an ethical violation. You have, uh, a so, duty, you have a duty of zealous advocacy to your client. Right, um, right. So, the, right. The right. Principle. Yeah, but so this is a very tricky problem for This is a very lawyers. tricky yeah. and a way, and one could get, could maneuver, let's use that word, in, a, in and around it. Um, are divorce proceedings open to the public in yeah. Connecticut? I yeah. think they are. Yes, right? they are. Uh, no question about it. Now, Because they're not in all states. Uh, that's right. Now, now in Connecticut, uh, it's very rare, but there is a process for sealing, either sealing certain documents. Mm-hmm. Or closing the courtroom for the entire proceedings. Mm-hmm, now, mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying it hasn't happened. I'm not aware of a, ca- a divorce case where the court closed and locked the door to the the the, the courtroom mm-hmm. for the proceedings. However, uh, it's um, uh, there is precedent certainly for sealing certain documents. In fact, oftentimes financial affidavits. Yeah, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. uh, for. Mm. for privacy reasons, uh, sometimes for um, um, companies have an interest in in their, um, you know, who employ people, for example, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. have an interest in, in their financial information not being made part of a public proceeding. It's proprietary information and th- there's, um, mm-hmm. uh, and the company owns it. So sometimes those things will be, uh, documents will be sealed, but even, even that's unusual. Uh, in mm-hmm. general, these things are open to the public. They're open, at least in the state of Connecticut. And you are listening today uh, to The Legal Eagle, and we are broadcasting live from downtown New Haven, um, and we are streaming live on TuneIn Radio. Uh, we are also streaming live video on Facebook, so check out Facebook, and you'll find us. Um, so now the final holding from the Connecticut Supreme Court comes down last month, right? And, and what does it essentially to those folks out there who are in the process of getting a divorce. By the way, how many divorces do we have? Do we know in Connecticut yearly? I don't have that exact number. It's certainly it's thousands. Thousands? Oh, sure. Yeah. Clearly, oh, yeah. Clearly thousands. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, um, well, let's face it. We have that many. About marriages. half of all marriages wind up in divorce. Correct. Uh, Correct. 40% right. of first marriages and like 60% of second marriages. Is that right? Yeah. And hmm. even in, and more than 70% for third marriages. Is that right? Yes. I had yeah. no idea. Those are the statistics. Those are national statistics. I don't have Connecticut specific on but those. But I understand that Connecticut has a relatively low rate of divorce compared to other states. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but there's still quite, quite a bit of uh, divorce that effect, affects a lot of people. The Supreme Court held that the case had to go back to the appellate court because the trial court did have subject matter jurisdiction. And, oh, okay. And now, so they sent it back. They sent it back to the appellate court and they told the appellate court to uh, look at the issues that we raised in our appeal to the appellate court in the first place. Which they had never addressed because they had determined there's no need to address these issues because there's no subject matter jurisdiction. The whole kit and caboodle is, is dismissed, so there's nothing else for us to look at. And so now the Supreme Court has, has, said, has said to the appellate court, look again. well, that was wrong. Uh, uh, the trial court did have the authority to hear the case. You have the authority to hear the case. And, and so, um, it, so don't tell me you're back in court. 
We are back in court, yeah, and, 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 and uh, continuing to litigate a motion to open the judgment that was filed in 2010. Wow. We're eight years later, and we could be easily a, a year or, or more. There are a number of path, pathways that the case could take. I mean, it could end in the appellate court. We could lose. That would be the end of it. Um, Why couldn't well, you? Well, or, I mean, or it's you possible could we, we could lose and we could go back up to the Supreme Court again. That, depending on the, the depending nature on of it. Depending on what happens, yes. Uh, it could be that we win, and that's the end of it. Uh, or um, we win and the other side appeals to the Supreme Court. Or we win and it goes back to the trial court to rehear some part of the case. Maybe not the whole thing, but some portion of it. And there are more proceedings, which then can go back up on appeal. So it's... Uh, 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 w- what we can tell you is we're not done yet. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of this whole process? I mean, not the process of the, the, the just how this statute was written originally mm-hmm. and what you're facing now and what, what couples who, I mean, obviously this, the wife did not know her husband's income. Well, now I knew my husband's income because I wrote the checks, and so did he. I mean, so what is it that we that that you know can happen here that could make this process a little bit easier? Well, uh, you know, in in many ways, the process has been working, and, and the law is responsive mm-hmm. to this. Now, uh, the law commits judgment calls mm-hmm. oftentimes, and many of them to the judgment of individual trial judges, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they're people right. just like you and me, and they each have their own points of view and their perspectives and their uh, sensibilities. Mm-hmm. And um, they're not perfect like any of us. Right. And, um, but, well, it's certainly in this sense, the system has worked in that the Supreme Court, of course, we believe got it right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, it made clear that the courthouse door should be open to people in this circumstance who just mm-hmm. want to agree to move on and be practical and not have to have a hearing over this issue. Um, let, let alone a fraud hearing. Let alone a fraud hearing, right. Um, and has agreed that uh, we're entitled to our day in court on the issues that we raise in the appellate court. Now, it's been so terribly... That's, it's, it's, that's, a, that's a major change in the thinking of the courts, right? That... That you don't need to go for it, the fraud. It had, it had been unclear, and one of the things right. that the Supreme Court uh, is charged with the responsibility to do is to make the law clear where it, it was previously unclear. Right, where it was ambiguous. Okay. And okay. So, so that's big. Yeah, Yeah, it's very important. And so to that extent, I think the system's worked well. Mm-hmm. The development of the law in this area, uh, meaning the area of uh, financial affidavits, mm-hmm. uh, how important they are and how important it is for courts to enforce them, um, has been very good, in my, my opinion, over mm-hmm. the years, mm-hmm. um, in, in, in really the modern era. I mean, it goes back to 1991 in a case called Billington versus Billington. Before Billington, a party who was in our client's position had to show, among other things, that she exercised, quote, due diligence, close quote, during the divorce to find out what her husband's assets and income were. And so she was would have been vulnerable to a claim that, hey, it's your fault you should have known uh, you didn't do a good enough job in discovery. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In 1991 in Billington, the Supreme Court eliminated the due diligence requirement mm-hmm. and essentially said a number of things that are very important to this day. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have any responsibility to do that. That's his job. Right. 
his right it's he's the one with the information it's his job to be honest about it and it's not fair to put on her i'm just using the genders that were at issue in my case it could be either way depending right, on right, the case right, right? um <clears throat> that's not her responsibility <clears throat> so that became very clear uh the court also talked um in f- um fairly flowery fashion i i think about the nature of the marriage relationship even when it's breaking down mm-hmm. and it talked about how it's a unique human relationship it's unlike a business deal it's mm-hmm. unlike another kind of court case in mm-hmm. terms of mm-hmm. the obligation of transparency between people mm-hmm. there's an intimacy this all in, in in the court's decision this unusual stuff for a, for right, a supreme right. court decision but um the court talks about that and it says that the obligation of a of a spouse even when the marriage is falling apart to be transparent with their other spouse is like a fiduciary obligation, which um, hmm. of course is among the highest yes. obligations in the law of transparency. And um, therefore it said that these financial affidavits are, are terribly, terribly important for two reasons, both as a matter of justice in individual cases, meaning mm-hmm. um, so that people can make intelligent decisions based mm-hmm. upon what the facts really are, but also as a matter of justice in the, um, um, systemic sense in mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. the system want, as Lenny was explaining before wants to encourage people to settle their disputes in a way that's reasonable mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. Right. and the system depends on people being able to do that I mean as I said before 90% of these cases settle we don't have the resources to try right. 15% let alone 100% no, right, of right, the right. cases yeah. we, in fact we try very little <laughs> we try very little and we can't and right. Um, right. so uh, these uh, financial affidavits have to be accurate, you know, the, the Supreme Court in Billington explained, as a mat- so that that system can work the way so it's the supposed to work. work. Right. And, right. and so back in 1991, the, the Supreme Court really put a flag in the ground in a case called Billington. And since then, um, I, we can talk more about it if, if you like, but there have been a couple of key cases along the way that in general terms have just reaffirmed this on the Supreme Court level mm-hmm. that the trial courts really have a heavy obligation right. to uh, enforce this. Okay. Okay. So that's, yes, that's a very good analysis. Um, and it looks like our time is up. Uh, it goes very fast when the topics are so interesting. And we will have Eric and Lenny back because we definitely want to know how this case works out. Uh, we want to thank you both for coming to the studio today to tell us about the latest twist in divorce cases, which affect many, many couples in the state. Uh, and to our listeners, you can go to the newhavenindependent.org website. You can get a podcast of this broadcast. You can listen to a variety of other shows that the, the station is producing each day. And we thank you for joining us today in New Haven. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much, Marsha. It was really our pleasure. Okay, thank you.